You've probably noticed that Adam's pulpit is still here. I, I haven't used this pulpit before. I've, I've used Mike's wooden pulpit. So, um, you know, when, when you're the head pastor, you get, you get your particular pulpit. But when you're the fill-in guy, you get whatever, you get whatever happens to be there. I was thinking if I could make my own pulpit, it would be like, if you've read Moby Dick, the, the, the pastor has one that's like the front of a ship. That would be cool. I don't know what message I'd be giving, but uh, it seems like it'd be really cool. Um, so this is an interesting passage. We're back in 2 Samuel. We've been out for about a month. And um, I think you could argue in a sense that David is kind of a minor character in this passage. He's here and he's doing stuff. Um, but we don't really learn a lot new about David. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like this passage is really, we, see, we learn a lot about God in this passage. We see a lot about God's personality, about his approach to things. And so that's kind of where we're going to focus this morning as we work our way through it. By way of introduction, because I know we've all forgotten, we've been out of this book for a while. Um, there had been the long civil war, uh, David had been, after, after Saul was gone, David had been over just Judah, and then there was the other tribe of Israel, and he had fought this, uh, I think a 13-year, a long civil war. He had fought this long, seven years, I can't remember now. But he had fought this long civil war, and then finally united the kingdom recently. And then in the previous passage we just read, there had been this battle where David went up and took the city of Jerusalem from, uh, from the Jebusites. And so he, he conquered that stronghold. And that brings us to where we are um, in verse 17. It says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now also by way of remembering a few more chapters back when David was hiding from Saul, when he was running away from Saul, he actually lived in Philistine territory for a while. Under the king of the Philistines was actually okay with it. And he pretended like he was going on raids for the Philistines. He would go and raid enemies and then come back and say, hey, I raided North Israel. Check it out. Look what I did. So the Philistines kind of thought like he was their guy. They kind of thought he was maybe somewhat on their side. And now they hear, uh, not only is that not the case, but he is actually king over all of Israel, their mortal enemy. Um, I thought it was interesting that it says when the Philistines heard that he had been anointed, all the Philistines went up to search for David. It sounds like they might have been worked up. Like, there's a bunch of them. They all came, and um, I'm thinking that they were, they, were, they, they were out for blood. And we're told David goes to, he went down to the stronghold, which I assume is just, just previously in the chapter, uh, they, they called Jerusalem the stronghold, the city of David. So I assume, we assume he's, he's, he's going down to Jerusalem. It's a fortified city. It's a good place if you have a whole bunch of angry Philistines coming to try and, try and attack you. It's a, it's a good place to be. Uh, so, by way of map, just so we can kind of set, our, um, set our, ourselves up as we move into verse 18, I'm going to put this up and let me read to you what, what it says in verse 18. It says, Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So here, here's Jerusalem. We've kind of got a, a little bit of like a zoom in right here, this valley of Rephaim or of Rephaim. I don't know how you say it. 
They're kind of right here. They've come from Gath in Philistia. They've come and they've traveled a long way and they're here in this valley. And this was, I thought this was just interesting. That's a picture of the valley today, just to give you some context of what it, what it looks like. Um, obviously, there were no train tracks when, or road when David was there, but just to give you a sense of the topography, that's what it looks like. So as we continue through the account, it says, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. So David sees them come and camp out, and he goes and he, he asks God. He says, should, should I go fight them? Now, so often throughout the Bible, the mistake that kings make, the, mis- the mistake that leaders make, um, so often throughout my life, the mistake that I make is not asking God what he would have them do, not asking for guidance. But, but David does ask. He, he says, God, here's this enemy. It seems kind of obvious. They're there encamped against you. But David, he, he asks God. He says, God, would you have me go? And God says, yes, go. You're going to win. So David goes. He takes his men down into the valley, and they fight. And they win. And David gives this, this place this poetic name, the Baal Perazim. It means the Lord of breaking through or the God of breakthroughs or the God of the flood, Lord of the flood. You, you might see Baal and think the Baals are like bad things throughout the Bible, but it, Baal just means Lord. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that he would call it that, but, but Baal can be the, the Lord's as the, bad, the, the, the evil the pagan gods that the people worship. But in this case, he's, he's calling, he's saying, God, you are the God of, of breaking through or the God, of, of, the God of, of a breaking through flood. He names the place that by way of memori- memori- memorializing what happened. So there's some suggestions in the commentaries that this might be a play on. There might have been an existing name that sounded like that and David, um, there, there might have been a flood there at one ha- time or something that happened and that David kind of made a play on that name. Um, it doesn't really matter. The, the point is, David gives God all the glory for this victory. David says, this was all God. This victory, this breakthrough victory was all God. Um, we do read one thing in verse 21 that's a little concerning. Maybe you noticed it. It says, the Philistines left their idols, and David and his men carried them away. That doesn't seem like a good thing. Um, thankfully, Chronicles tells almost this exact same story in parallel, and sometimes it has slightly extra details, and in this case, it does. This is the end of that exact same story in 1 Chronicles, and it says, and they left their gods there, and David gave command, and they were burned. So they did take the idols away, but they took them away and burned them. So if you were worried, it's okay. Don't be worried. Everything's okay. Um, So this first event, it's pretty great. David inquires of God. God says, go. He goes down. He decisively wins this battle. Um, he gives God praise for the success. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good recipe, right? Ask God, act using our gifts and talents that he's giving us and our abilities, and then when we're done, give God the praise. Sermon over. We're done, right? That's <laughs> but it's, it's pretty good. I would say that's, that's, a, good, that's a, good, a good formula. And yet, the story goes on. 
Let's keep reading. Verse 22 says, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. So that's interesting. Um, they came back to the same place, that same valley that we had looked at before, this valley right here. And if you're like me, I mean, it's the same enemy. It's camping in the same place. It's, everything's the same. And last time went pretty well. You'd think, well, I know what I need to do here, right? Let's go back down there and break through again. Let's have another flood. I mean, do I really need to ask God again? I know what he told me to do last time in this exact same situation. It seems kind of redundant. And honestly, won't he get kind of sick of me asking? I mean, it seems kind of silly almost. Like, really, I mean, it's clear what God would want. Why, what, don't, don't, don't you think God might get sick of me asking over again? Or worse, clearly I'm capable of beating these guys. I did it once. I mean, yeah, we, we, called, we gave God the glory for it and we called it everything. But I mean, you know, I kind of broke through like a flood with my army last time. Like, I think I could do it again. Is that just me who does that? Or, you know, can you relate? So thankfully, David asks. He goes and he asks God again. He says, he inquired of him, and God said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. So you're here in Jerusalem. Whoop, what did I do? I'm going to go back up to this other slide because it's a little more detailed. You're here in Jerusalem, and they're camped here. The easy thing is this, right? I mean, this, the, the nice thing about what he said first time is it's a straight shot. You just shoot up into that valley, and you go have a battle. But God wants them to come around behind, which means somehow you got to go. If they're here, you gotta, you got to travel somehow, because you can't like go all the way, and then they see you, and you loop around behind. I mean, if you're going to come around behind them, you got a long journey to get there, right? So, I don't know. God says, I want you to, I want you to go further. Um, as a side note, my Bible says balsam trees. Um, most commentaries say they were probably mulberry trees or terebinth because that's what trees are actually there in that valley today for all of the botanists who were, who were concerned about that. I don't know. I just I thought that was interesting. They're mulberry trees. So God goes on to explain how he's going to handle the battle. He says, And when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So this is, this is an interesting thing to break down. What's going on here? So first we have to note, they've gone down around behind their enemy. I'm gonna, I don't like this slide. I like the zoom one better. They've gone down around behind their enemy here. They're on the opposite side of the valley from what must have been a big grove of trees, right? So the trees are here, the enemy's here, and they're, they're somehow, the, the trees are between, or on the other side. The Philistine army's right in the middle. Second, they're told they're going to hear this sound of marching in the trees. They're going to hear the sound of, of a marching army in the trees. Um, some commentaries say, well, maybe that was maybe the wind made kind of a marching sound in the trees. Which doesn't sound right to me. Because, I mean, they say that's a possibility. The other commentaries also say it, seems, it also seems likely that, that God actually did something. And it seems more likely that God did something. In part because the Philistines have camped here before. And if they've camped here before, 
and the wind blowing in the trees makes a sound of soldiers marching, the Philistines would know that, right? I mean, they've camped here before. This is their second time camping there. So it seems like there's something different happening here, something supernatural. God is causing some kind of a sound to come from the trees that sounds like marching feet. Third, notice what David and his men are doing before this happens. We're not told explicitly what they're doing, but implicitly we're told that when you hear the sound, you should arise or stir, stir yourself or get up. So that means before it happened, they were hanging out. They had spent, they, they came around behind the backside and they were crouched down, hiding, and they were waiting for what God was going to do. So that's God's plan this time. Go around the back, hide out, and wait for me to make a sound. Um, and then we're told David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So they do as they instruct him, and uh, now if we go back to our big map here. It looks like if the battle was here, they chased him all the way up from Geba to Gezer. Like, they chased him a long ways, all, all the way back almost to, the, to their own territory. Now, if you've read much about ancient, ancient battles or you, or you like to study that, um, one of the things that, that, that you find out is that the main fighting is not where, where most people die. The main fighting is after one side or the other takes off and starts running. Um, I, had, I, I did some looking around to find a good quote. I, quoted, I found ChatGPT to quote. If you're not familiar, it's a, it's a website. It does a pretty good job of summarizing a lot of internet content. So, um, and, and this, is things, this is something I've read in other places. When an enemy's force turns to retreat, it often marks the commencement of the true devastation. Their formation is fractured, their defenses are lowered, and panic seizes their resolve. As they expose their vulnerability, the battle transitions into a rout, and the rout descends into a bloodbath. Right? Because if you're fighting somebody shield to shield and spear to spear, you might get a few through. But when guys turn and start running and they drop their shields and spears, it, 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 it tends to be where the worst casualties happen. So it is likely this was a more complete victory. That the Philistines, running all the way from, from Geba to Gezer, are really mowed down um, by David and his men. Although David did describe the previous one as a flood breaking through, so that was pretty successful too. So that's our whole passage. We've got these two encounters where God gives completely different direction and, and where they play out in, two, in completely different ways. And I've noticed that the author of First and Second Samuel likes parallels. I think actually the last time I preached on it was also a parallel account. Two things very similar and somewhat different. And I think that's on purpose. I think that the author and, and God, through the author of First and Second Samuel, is trying to get our attention. So, what, what are they trying to get us to see? What, what, what are we try, supposed to see in these two battles that are very much the same and very much different? In the first battle, David and his army seem like they're capable when a direct approach was used. I mean, why not go with that again? Why go with this, this fantastic, miraculous way? You have an army there that's capable of winning. But if you've read much of the Bible, God does this a lot, right? God does, takes this kind of approach a lot. And one example is the story of Gideon. Do you know the story of Gideon? You've probably heard the name. This is back in the book of Judges. Uh, so this is, this is before David's time. That, that Israel is in the land, but they don't have a king yet. And so 
they are various, at various times turning away from God and, and outside peoples come and oppress them and then God raises up a judge to kind, of, to kind of free them. And so Gideon is one of those judges and God raises him up to go fight against these people called the Midianites who have been doing just really oppressing the Jews to the point where they, they barely have food to eat. And Gideon rounds everybody up and he gets an army of 22,000 men to go fight them. And in Judges 7-2, God says, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So God says, I want you to send home any of them who are scared. Like, ask the guys, say, if any of you are scared, go home. And 12,000 of them go home. <laughs> and he's left with 10,000. Okay, that's, that's still a pretty decent army. And God says, it's still too many. I don't like it. It's still too many, Gideon. So he's, this is this. He says, "Go, have them take a drink from from the river. Get it, have everybody get, and I want you to watch them all." And so they go and they they all take a drink. And God says, "Any of the guys who knelt down and like used their hands to drink, those are the ones you keep. But anybody who laid on their belly and drank straight out of the uh, of the creek, they can all go home." Now I would think most people would kneel down and use their hand, but apparently that's not the case. Apparently, most people then would lay on their belly and just stick their face in, in the creek. And, and so, Gideon winds up with 300 guys, 300 guys who, 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 who like knelt down and, and lapped water into their mouth. He says, like a dog. So I want the guys who drink water like dogs. That's the guys I want you to bring with me. It's a weird test. And uh, I could spend all day talking about this story because it's a good one, but we're not going to do that. The point is... They go, and the, the Midianite army, it's, we're told, is as numerous as locusts. So I kind of think 22,000 would have been a pretty good victory, or 10,000. But God does it with 300, and he completely devastates this huge army with 300 people. And that's the point. That's the point. God wants it to be clear who's winning the battle. So he does it in this spectacular way. We see it with, with, with Joshua in Jericho where he has them march around and the walls fall down. You, you see it in, with Moses with the, with the Red Sea. Um, in one of my favorite accounts in the whole Bible, there's Sennacherib is count, camping outside and Hezekiah is king and God just sends one angel to kill 85,000 people. Like, he doesn't use the army, he uses an angel. Um, why? Why does God do things in this extraordinary way? Because we know that David and his army were fully capable of beating these guys. They had done it once before. So why have them take the long way around? Well, in the case of Judges, God tells us. He says, it, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. He says to Gideon, you know, I don't want you to think you did it yourself. I want you to see that it was me who saved you. Um, but, is, but David has clearly demonstrated that's not a risk with him. Right? He won. He won with his guys. And, and he gave God all the credit. He named the place after God. So it doesn't seem like that's the risk with God or with David. It seems like there's something else going on. I'm going to tell you why I think that God acted this way. And it's possible you're not going to like it. Um, you might, but it's possible you're not. I think that God does this because God loves his own glory. Is that hard to hear? That idea that God loves his own glory. I know that I, I don't, I, I kind of bristle at that a little bit. Um, part of the reason because if I said, if I said, Chris loves to display his own glory, you would say, gross, 
like that's not you would we wouldn't like that, right? Or, or if we said um, certain political leaders like to display their own glory, we 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 don't like that. We don't like when people want to emphasize their own glory. And we're right; people shouldn't. But God's not God's not a people. God's not us. God is God. So you may still be struggling. I get it. Let me, let me make my case in a couple of ways. The first is with just a few verses. God says in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He says in Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. And Ezekiel, he says, but for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. So there's a lot more verses, right? But that theme runs through the Bible. God saying, I care about my glory. I care about my name. I care about my fame. Yes, he cares about people not taking credit for it themselves and depending on them. But he seems to also just care about, about his name. So let me take a step back here. If I haven't completely lost you. And, and I want to, this is a picture of Half Dome, right? This is a picture of Half Dome. And it's a, it's a pretty picture. We look at it and we say, ah, oh, that's really pretty. That's beautiful. And it's, I mean, it's actually a pretty good high resolution one. It, it's neat. But if you've been to Yosemite Valley in person, you know that seeing it in person from the valley floor is even more spectacular. There's a reason we don't just sell pictures of Half Dome. We, people go. Um, Millions of people every year drive a long way and deal with big crowds so that they can see it in person rather than in a photograph. And some small, crazy fraction of those people get up early and hike all day so they can climb to the top of it, and they can see it close up. They can stand right at the top of that and really take in just how glorious it is. Now, nobody forces them to do it. They're not doing it because they're getting paid. In fact, people pay to do it. People pay to go do this because they enjoy it. There's something enjoyable about standing there in person and seeing it. There's something enjoyable about standing on top of it. And what about sports? Like, I, I did car racing for Randy. So car racing, like, many people watch it on television, and there's some satisfaction in seeing, like, really fast cars and really good drivers. But then there's a bunch of people every week who go and, want to, and sit in person because there's something more spectacular about seeing it close up. And if you pay extra or get there early, I don't really know how it works. Somehow, sometimes you can go down and actually see the car close up. Do you pay extra for that? Okay. So whatever, you can, you can, you can go and see the car close up. Um, and, and it's the same with so many things. I was thinking of like, you know, we don't, just, we don't want to just look at a picture of Paris. We want to go to Paris. Um, we want to see the place close up. And we do it because it, it's joy, it brings us joy to do that. Getting close up to beautiful and spectacular things brings us joy. And we only do it for certain things, right? Nobody's, nobody's planning a trip, a, a seven-day getaway to Bakersfield, probably. Um, <laughs> or if, if I could say you could go to Bakersfield or Paris, like you're probably going to pick Paris. Or um, I don't know, maybe some of you like Bakersfield. But most people would take Paris because it's beautiful and rich and, and, and in, in glorious things. Um, you can go on, the Grand Canyon, right? You can, you can see a little bit of it from the top, or you can hike down into it and see more of it. You, can, you get more of its glory. For some reason, experiencing glorious things gives us joy. 
There's also an interesting thing about joy. Um, and C.S. Lewis says it really interesting. He says, he says this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. He goes on, he says, it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell everybody, tell somebody else how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Have you experienced that? We not only take joy in experiencing glorious things, but we take joy in expressing, like sharing, telling people about it. And there's one more point we need to make about glorious things, is that glorious things are that way whether we see them or not. Even though there is joy in seeing them, they are glorious whether we see them or not. So Half Dome is sitting there being glorious, right? None of us are standing there looking at it, probably somebody is, but it's sitting there being glorious right now, right? Whether we're looking at it or not. God's glory was not incomplete before we existed. God didn't need to create us or angels in order to be glorious. He was that way before we existed. Even if you're someone who says that beauty is somehow incomplete until it's observed, like, you know, the tree falling in the forest doesn't make it sound like it's something glorious if somebody's looking at it. I'm not saying I agree with that, but even if it is, God, was, God is triune. So before anything else was created, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were all, were all taking in each other's glory. So... The point is, God does not love his glory because he needs us to see it for it to be true. Does that make sense? God does not love his glory because we somehow validate him, his gloriousness, by, but when we, when we acknowledge it. If he doesn't love his glory because he needs for us to see it, then why does he care about it? He, because he cares about our joy. God wants us to experience joy. So for God, caring about his glory is the same thing as caring about your joy. They're the same thing. The most joy you can possibly experience is getting a glimpse of the most glorious thing in the universe. If half dome brings you joy, how much more when you see the one who made it? One more quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm relying on him a lot because he, he, he wrote a lot about this and said it well. He said, fully to enjoy is to glorify in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. God wants us to enjoy him, and the way he does that is by showing us how beautiful he is. So back to our passage. Why does God have David take the long way around the second time? Why not take the direct way and beat these guys head on again? Because it's boring. <laughs> The head-on way is, I mean, doing it the second way, it's boring. And God is not boring. There's a line in, uh, in one of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movies at the very end where, where they see Aslan walking away and they say, he is not a, he's not a tame lion. God is not a tame lion. God is creative, and he takes delight in giving David success in this different way. This way that's so much more amazing and gives a bigger glimpse into who God is. To command trees to make a noise or, I don't know, maybe angels are walking across the trees or you could take the naturalist view of like, maybe God had like a whole flock of like rats run across. I don't know what he did, but God did something spectacular there, right? I mean, you can, you, there's, 
I, I don't know how he did it. But somehow God made this crazy sound. And think of the delight and the amazement that David and his men must have felt as they sat there watching this unfold. They're sitting there and they see the enemy hear this sound and they turn. The whole enemy turns their backs to them and starts going towards the trees. Think of the joy that they got to experience in going home and telling their family about, you are never going to believe how we beat the Philistines this time. This is the story they told their kids and their grandkids, those guys and their soldier. I don't think they told them, I mean, maybe, but probably not. If, you, if there was one where, yeah, we went down and we had a battle and we beat the guys, it was a good battle. And then this one where you're like, yeah, we hung out on in the, in the rocks and then the trees started marching and then we chased the guy. That's the story you tell for generations. So what about us? What do we do with this? First, I think we want to ask God for direction in our lives and everything. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty straightforward, right? We kind of made that point already. But it, if it's something you've done and succeeded before, I think God wants to hear it. He wants us to, to ask him and, and open our eyes that he might have a different path for us. I think if David hadn't have done that, he probably still would have won the battle. I think probably if David would have just taken the troops and gone down and fought again, I, I don't know, I'm speculating, but it, it seems like it's possible that they might have beat the Philistines again and it would have been kind of cool, another battle we broke through again. We'll, we'll call the place the, I don't know, like Baal Perazim Squared or something like we, we did it twice there. But like it, it, he might have won, but it, it, it's fine, but not amazing. And he would have missed out on what God wanted to show him. And I think it's the same for us. When we don't ask for God's guidance, I think we often miss out on the greater things he has for us. And I think second, when, when we do ask and God tells us to take the long way around, we need to keep that in the right perspective. For me, I know so often when God does that, when, when, my, when, when my prayer is not answered directly, when he, doesn't, when he doesn't take me down the road that I think is the right one, I think, well, he's doing it for my own good. He's trying to teach me something. He's trying to discipline me or something like he. There must be something going on there. Um, but do I ever think maybe God has something neater he wants? Maybe God has something better, more interesting, more exciting, more spectacular he wants to show me. Because the Bible tells us that he does hear and he does care. So I think in these times we need to preach to ourselves about who God is. God is working in our lives to help us see his glory. And it's not because he needs, he needs us to see it for it to be true. He's glorious whether we see it or not. But it's because he wants us to have more joy. He's not satisfied with us having a little bit of joy. Mediocre joy. He wants to take us to Paris rather than Bakersfield. So as, as we think about this, um, I guess think about some times in your life when you've struggled, when you've prayed and when you felt like God's not answering, or like he answered in a way that you didn't expect it, whether it's for health, or praying for someone that we care about to turn to God, or for reconciliation, um, when we find ourselves in times like that, we need to open our eyes and look for God at work. Picture yourself hunkering down in the rocks, watching for what he's going to do. Listen for the sound of marching in the trees. Because very often in those times, God is preparing to do something spectacular. And he's doing it for his glory, but he's doing it for your joy too. Let's pray. God, this is a hard thing to wrap our minds around sometimes. It's a hard thing to remind ourselves of sometimes. Um, we forget 
how creative you are. We forget how spectacular and, and thoughtful and how much you care for us too, God. How the things that you do are because you, you delight in seeing us take joy in you. You delight in seeing us be amazed. So God, I pray that you would open our eyes today and whatever struggles we're in and whatever struggles we may face in the day and week ahead and weeks ahead, I pray that you would open our eyes, God, to see you so that we would be looking for, looking for your work and looking for the joy that you seek to bring us as you work in our lives. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.